This is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. Okay, Petri Dish people, for this episode, we're doing something a little different. I guest hosted a special episode of The Source from Texas Public Radio on January 13th of this new year, all about long COVID. We took listener questions for two of my favorite experts on COVID and long COVID, Dr. Barbara Taylor, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Long School of Medicine and an infectious diseases doctor and researcher at University Health in San Antonio, as well as Dr. Sura Sashadri, a neurologist and the founding director of the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases at UT Health San Antonio. So instead of sharing a show in our typical podcast format, we're going to share this special because it's got a ton of good info on long COVID and what it's like to be a long hauler from some people who are living it. Now, heads up, here in South Texas, we have a fun winter allergy season, which can cause what's known colloquially as cedar fever, and I've got it. You can hear it in my voice now, and you can definitely hear it in the show. I struggle a little bit. Now, I may sound like a frog, but please bear with me for what the experts have to say. It's important stuff. Thank you so much, and talk to you soon. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio 89.1 FM. I'm Bonnie Petrie, in for David Martin Davies, and today... Since early in the pandemic, it was clear that not everyone fully recovered from COVID-19, even after the virus was long gone from their systems. They couldn't breathe. They couldn't think. They had chronic pain. They couldn't get out of bed. They couldn't work or take care of their families. COVID symptoms lingered for weeks and months and devastated their lives. They became known as long haulers, and the syndrome they were suffering from became known as long COVID. San Antonio researchers have been on this since the beginning, and we are now joined by two of them uh, who will take your questions and hear your stories if you call or text at 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. And they are Dr. Barbara Taylor, the Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Assistant Dean uh, for the MD-MPH program at UT Health San Antonio, and Dr. Sudish Sashadri, who is a professor of neurology and founding director of the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurogen I can never say this word, neurodegenerative diseases at UT Health San Antonio. Thank you both so much for joining us. Let's start with Dr. Taylor. Um, could you tell me, um, uh, since you, you are involved in a study, which we'll talk about later on, uh, but you must have a working definition of what long COVID is. So that is actually a more complicated question than it sounds, Bonnie. <laughs> so as you probably know, there are several different definitions of long COVID or long haul COVID or what we call post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 or PASC out there. The I think the simplest way to think about it is someone who continues to have symptoms after a COVID diagnosis, but how long someone is required to have symptoms varies between the different definitions. So the CDC defines post-COVID conditions as sort of four or more weeks after you're first infected with SARS-CoV-2 How, as far as persistent symptoms. 
the more formal definitions of PASC, of post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2, require people to have symptoms for 12 weeks or about three months. But really, I, in my own practice, and I think clinically, I start talking to people about it after four weeks. If people are continuing to have symptoms in the subacute period, sort of four weeks to 12 weeks, I think it is something for to consider. What symptoms are you seeing? So I think another challenge with who has long COVID is the vast variety of symptoms that we see. So the most common symptom by far is fatigue. Um, there are also the second most common are often neurologic conditions. And so I'm sure Dr. Shashadri will have a lot of insight into those. But we see what's called brain fog or neurocognitive challenges and headache, very common. But we also see lung conditions like shortness of breath or pain when you breathe in. We see heart challenges. We see it affecting people's kidneys, people's GI tract, people's livers, um, neuropathies. There are many, many ways that this can manifest, which is why there's not yet one clear definition of what this is. Dr. Shadri, I remember talking to you early in the pandemic, and you were concerned immediately uh, because the symptoms, uh, what two of the symptoms were loss of taste and smell, and you're a neurologist, and you said, that's the brain. So tell me about that. Sure. Um, as you said, uh, loss of smell and taste are unusually prominent in this viral infection with SARS-CoV-2. And as a neurologist, there are three conditions where loss of smell is prominent. One is after head injury, and the other two are Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. In fact, for many years, neurologists have considered using smell tests um, as early markers of neurodegenerative processes. So that was one cause for concern. But it does seem like the virus affects the brain in many ways. Um, so if you do have anosmia or if you do have problems with smell and taste, there's a suspicion that you may be a little more likely to have long-term sequelae, but you don't have to have that to have neurological manifestations of long COVID. Um, so what neurological manifestations are we seeing in long COVID? Uh, there is commonly this brain fog that is a sensation of cognition not quite being what it was. And when you test, um, people fit the definition of what is called mild cognitive impairment. Uh, there may be slowness in thinking, uh, difficulty with memory. Other symptoms um, are fatigue. Uh, they can be uh, muscle and nerve type symptoms uh, ranging from muscle pain, uh, weakness, um, to tingling in the uh, distribution of the nerves in the hands and feet. Uh, they can be involvement of what we call the autonomic nervous system. This is the part that keeps your heart rate and your GI system uh, working well. So 
people can have um, dizziness when they stand up because the regulation of the blood pressure when you stand up is a nervous system function. Um, so uh, they can have sleep disturbances. Again, sleep is something that is partly neurological. Um, so this is sort of uh, common symptoms. So I would love for the rest of the show to be questions from listeners. So I'm going to give the number again, 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. We also, uh, you can tweet us at TPR Source and email us at the source at tpr.org. Let's go to the phones. Alyssa is on the line. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, it's Alicia. Um, I have to totally agree with that. I've always wonder why my brain felt so foggy. I'm like, I'm a college graduate. I've um, had experience in my field for so long. I happened to lose my job because I couldn't function at the level I'm used to functioning at before Mm -hmm. I had COVID. And I just couldn't understand. And sometimes I would cry about it. Yeah. Um, And um, I experienced depression. I started right away in August seeing a therapist as well as um, seeing a, I mean, seeing a doctor first um, and then seeing a therapist after that, maybe a few months after that, because Mm -hmm. I just had this fogginess, this sense of depression, anxiety. I Mm -hmm. totally get where the no smell is. Almost burnt my house down during COVID Mm -hmm. because I couldn't smell the smoke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Taylor, let's uh do do you have a question uh or did you just want to share your experience? I just wanted to share that and I would mm-hmm. also just want to make a comment if you all would even think of considering the longer haul of the effects maybe past 6 months cuz I still feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I, I have that low that um the, the, I can't breathe as often. I'm um I I was working out up until COVID. I have no desire to work out because of the depression, not the depression, um, but because of the um, shortness of breath and then my back. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't walk as far as I used to. I'm just like, my health is going down so fast. So that's just all Mm -hmm. I wanted to say. Yeah, I didn't want to cut you off if you had a question, too. But uh, just sharing your experience is definitely enough. And I thank you for doing it, Dr. Taylor. That's a lot. Yeah. So I just want to thank Alicia for calling and sharing her experience. And I think hopefully you know that you are not alone in this this struggle. This is one of the most common presentations we see for long COVID, the brain fog and sort of a persistent fatigue and other things. It can be very debilitating for people. Many, many people have difficulty returning to work. There, I, just, there's a recent study that shows that actually in Wuhan, China, some of the earlier experience, um, there are about a quarter of people were unable to return to their regular jobs. Dr. Taylor, I'm going to interrupt you right there. We're going to let you finish after the break. Call us at 833-TPR-TALK if you have a long haul story or a question for these fine San Antonio researchers. Source on Texas Public Radio 89.1 FM. I'm Bonnie Petrie. 
in for David Martin Davies. Call uh, or text us at 833-TPR-TALK with your long-haul stories or questions. Uh, Dr. Taylor, I interrupted you before the break. Do you have more to add for Alicia about her experience? Uh, thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, so the other thing that I, I think is important to recognize is although the sort of definition of long COVID is symptoms after four weeks or 12 weeks, we definitely see people who continue to have symptoms after a year or more. Our understanding of this illness evolves as we have more experience with people in recovery from COVID-19. And some of these symptoms can last a very long time, especially the brain fog and the difficulty with word finding and other things can be really a challenge for people. So, Dr. Sashadri, uh, since uh, so much of that I heard from Alicia is associated with the brain, um, can you can you just dive uh, more deeply into uh, what what we may be seeing occur with the brain in long COVID? We are still studying this, and Dr. Taylor actually leads an effort in San Antonio to enroll people who have had COVID. Um, to better understand the whole range of symptoms affecting the body and the brain, we are partnering in that piece. We are looking at many things. We know that uh, there are receptors in the uh, part of the brain that is involved in smell, as well as many other parts of the brain that the viruses bind to. There are two kinds of receptors. Um, and then, so there, the virus likely enters part of the brain for some time. It may not stay there, but then there is a response of the body, an immune response that can result in injury. Uh, this can be within the brain or the immune response generated in the body, which in turn can um, damage parts of the brain. There seem to be... Um, effects on the neurons, the glia, as well as on the small blood vessels that supply these neurons and glia. We, during uh, COVID, among people who become very ill, we know that you can have a higher risk of stroke and thrombosis. And even when there is not that severe an illness, there seems to be um, microvascular changes that may happen. We are doing a study with brain MRI, including a very sensitive, high, ultra-high um, strength brain MRI to understand the full range of these effects. And there have been studies on the brains of people who died with COVID to see what is the type of injury that we are seeing. So we know that there seem to be many ways in which the um, virus can injure the brain, which perhaps explains symptoms. But of course, during life, we are just beginning to understand through these different types of studies like MRI and living people, what is the correlation between what we see in the brain and what the symptoms are. And often there is nothing obviously wrong on, say, a scan of the brain. And so there is the hope that these changes are because of functional things that can reverse over time. Um, 
that's again uh, important yeah. area to understand who is likely to get these symptoms and what we might do to help them. Right, absolutely. Let's go to uh, Leonard on the phone. Hi, Leonard. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm, my call is about long COVID and children. My daughter contracted COVID before she was, uh, before they had the vaccine available for children under 12. And she, uh, her pediatrician informed us that the leg pain that she was experiencing was a symptom of long COVID. And she, that was back in August. And she still has some leg pain now. And I don't know if it's due to a symptom of long COVID or if she's just having growing pains. All right, how, so, long does, how long does that last? All right. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, I will uh, direct that question to Dr. Taylor first, though. The number 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. And Dr. Taylor, we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years about uh, vaccinations in kids because we don't have a lot of understanding of what long COVID might look like in kids. Can you speak to Leonard's questions? So I will do my best with a caveat that I'm definitely not a pediatrician. So Leonard, thanks for your question. I think one of the things that you note was that your daughter unfortunately contracted COVID before vaccines were available. So I I definitely want to say that vaccination has already been shown to decrease the incidence of long COVID by about 50% in a UK study. So unfortunately, these are these are things that we're learning as we go. One of the big gaps in our knowledge is actually in pediatric PASC or post-acute COVID-19. And we don't know as much as we as we would hope at this point to answer your question. One of the things that, as you mentioned, is really important to do when we're thinking about long COVID is to also think about other things that could cause. Long COVID is a little bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. That's what we call it, where we want to make sure that we look for other things that could be causing the pain. So in the case of your daughter, are these growing pains? Is she having a natural change in her limb length at this stage of her growth that are accounting for the pains or is it long COVID? I would definitely encourage you to go back to your pediatrician and ask. And then also there are really amazing, the the nice thing about long COVID is that we work in really multidisciplinary teams to care for people with long COVID. So for example, Dr. Shashadri's team has amazing insights into the neurologic sequelae. We have a colleague, Dr. Monica Verdusco-Gutierrez, who's a physiatrist who really works with a lot of people on the physical and neurologic um, and sort of functional aspects of long COVID. So that may be appropriate for an evaluation, but I think it's worth investigating. All right, 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. Let's go straight to Curtis. Hi, Curtis. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, You talk about neurological issues like brain fog, remembering names, loss of smell, brain injury, things that you'd see like in with early Alzheimer's. Do you have any concerns that COVID could cause brain injury that could either lead to people someday being more likely to develop Alzheimer's later in life or to get Alzheimer's sooner than they would have other gotten it without COVID? Any concerns in that area? That's all you, Dr. Sashadri. Thank you, Curtis. You are 
obviously you're thinking exactly along the lines that we have been concerned about. In fact, uh, there is a special emphasis group in the 2022 Alzheimer's disease-related disorders um, planning meeting of the National Institutes on Health, and that's entirely devoted to how is COVID-19 pandemic likely to impact the risk of Alzheimer's disease-related disorders, as well as how is it going to impact progression in people who might have an early stage of the disease, you know, might be having mild cognitive impairment at this stage. Um, this is a worrying question because over the last 30, 40 years, it seemed like with control of hypertension and better education, we were slowly beginning to decrease, I mean, increase the age at which people develop symptoms of Alzheimer's in North America. And this trend could get reversed so that the age goes down if we throw in this big factor. Now, the effect of the virus is one part of the thing we are concerned about. But there are other reasons that we are concerned about the pandemic because, as you know, social isolation was something that happened during the pandemic, a decrease in exercise, a change in the healthiness of the diet that people were eating. These are also factors that can increase the risk of Alzheimer's. So this is definitely something that um, is of concern, is something that we need to study, and uh, we and others have some four, five-year grants to uh, see what the impact is going to be. It's too early now to tell. Uh, so, Dr. Sishadri, I wanted to follow up on uh, that a little bit. We'd heard uh, throughout the pandemic that some people who were in the early stages of dementia sort of saw a rapid worsening of their symptoms. Is that something you've seen? Yes, we have definitely seen um, worsening in some people. Um, this, in certain cases with uh, COVID, they can be demyelinating changes in the brain or stroke-type symptoms or encephalitis-type symptoms, which would explain the worsening. But sometimes you see a worsening without any of these um, clear links when you, say, examine the person or image the brain. There is a suggestion that some genes that increase the risk for um, Alzheimer's may also increase your vulnerability to COVID, such as the gene apolipoprotein E and some rarer genes. Um, so this is something that has us worried, and we're trying to understand why this might happen. Uh, yeah, so um, can you tell me either, uh, Dr. Taylor, I'll actually ask you, can you tell me about how uh, the COVID virus uh, moves through the body um, so that it can affect, it's a multi-sort of system uh, disease and how that uh, sort of translates into different long COVID sy symptoms. And we'll probably get half of your answer in before the break and then, and then we'll elaborate later. <laughs> okay, sounds great. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, 
enters your body through inhalation, usually, and it binds to receptors on the cells that are in either your upper airway tract, as is the case with Omicron, or in your lungs. But from there, it can really go throughout your body. So one of the things, like Dr. Shashadri mentions, is the, the thing that might be causing long COVID or contributing to long COVID is direct viral harm, harm from the virus to all sorts of organs, your kidneys, your liver, your pancreas, your heart, your lungs, your joints. You know, we see people getting diabetes more after COVID infection, probably because of inflammation in your pancreas. So it really does disseminate. It is a full body infection and it has the potential to affect every single organ in your body. And that uh, may explain all that we don't know. And we will talk about that after the break. Uh, your study, Dr. Taylor, and the research you've been doing, uh, Dr. Sish Adrian, a long COVID, which uh, really is a, a multi-system uh, syndrome. So uh, stick around if you have questions about long COVID or want to share your story. 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. You can tweet us at TPR Source or email us at the source at tpr.org. Uh, you're listening to The Source. I'm Bonnie Petrie in for David Martin Davies. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, 89.1 FM. And I want to get to a caller real quick uh, before we talk about uh, the UT Health San Antonio studies going on into long COVID. And that's what we're talking about this afternoon, long haulers and long COVID. Uh, Hi, Lisa. What's on your mind? Hi. Thank you. Um, I had COVID in uh, December of 20. I lost my taste and smell. Um, over the next you know few months, it you know felt like it slowly was coming back, and then all of a sudden, about six months into it, I my taste and smell just turned into everything tastes bad, tastes strange, weird smells, the whole thing. So I you know I'm, I think that's called parosmia, and I was wondering, um, is there anything out there that can be done to help reverse uh, this parosmia, and how long you know? Do we think it's going to last? Does it ever get back to normal? Um, just, and also, you know, I've got, you know, the joint pain is, as well um, that I've got with long COVID. And I don't know what kind of studies are being done with that. All right. Let's talk to first uh, to Dr. Sashadri about uh, her taste and smell situation. Sure. Um, taste and smell um, seem to take different courses in different people. So in some, it comes back fairly quickly and re- returns to normal. And in others like you, it can fluctuate and people can be left with deficits. Um, and we don't completely understand why there is a difference uh, in different groups of people. Um, there isn't a drug that we are able to use specifically to bring back smell uh, or taste. As I told you earlier, we used to see this in um, early Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and we still don't have any medicine specifically for that. But more broadly, there are uh, studies being done to see um, what might help 
with the entire long COVID syndrome. It is important to ensure, first of all, that they're, uh, you know, that nutritionally and in terms of vitamins, there are no deficits because those are correctable factors. They may or may not bring back the taste and smell, but um, if they are contributing, that's something easy to address. And then we don't have, again, a specific treatment for long COVID, which is why there are other studies ongoing. But um, Dr. Monica Verdugo-Gutierrez, as Dr. Taylor mentioned, runs a clinic. Um, we, um, I, at the Alzheimer's Center, we run a clinic more for older persons, uh, focusing more on the cognition, and she focuses more on people across the lifespan with um, perhaps less um, specific to cognition symptoms. Uh, but yes, offline, we'd be happy to uh, examine the specific circumstances in your case and whether you would be eligible for one of the studies. Right. So let's go to Dr. Taylor now. This is a great way to transition. Uh, Lisa talked about uh, joint pain. Um, and I know that uh, UT Health San Antonio is one of the locations for a great big National Institutes of Health study into long COVID. So um, if you could just start by talking about why she might have all this joint pain and then sort of segue into talking about the study. Yeah, thank you. And I think that joint pain is a very common long COVID symptom. And unfortunately, we know that joint pain can be, we've known that joint pain can be a sequela of lots of infectious diseases for for decades. You know, this is, although long COVID is specific to COVID-19, there are many other illnesses, particularly infectious diseases, that lead to these types of symptoms going along. And the exact reason why people get joint pain is unclear, but certainly what we see in folks are these increased levels of inflammation. Your immune system gets what we call dysregulated, where your body is telling you that you're supposed to be responding to a, a pathogen, like an infectious agent with inflammation to fight it off, even after that infection is gone. And so we also see people developing autoimmune antibodies or autoantibodies, all of which can definitely contribute to joint pain. We, as Bonnie, as you mentioned, we are very excited to be participants in a very large National Institutes of Health study called RECOVER, which stands for Researching COVID-19 to Enhance Recovery, which is led here by Dr. Tom Patterson, Dr. Shashadri, Dr. Dusko Gutierrez, myself, Dr. Goldberg. It's a very multiple disciplinary team locally who are working on it. We're doing this here in San Antonio and in Laredo, and we're really trying to understand and prevent and determine treatments for long COVID. We'll follow people over four years, so we'll really hopefully get a good idea of how it looks at the beginning and then how many people have persistent symptoms. And just the ultimate question of how many people who get COVID will actually get long COVID and what are the risk factors for that? Are there any things that we can do to understand why some people get long COVID and other people don't? So all of those questions will fit within the umbrella of this very large National Institutes of Health study. How many people in San Antonio are you looking to enroll? We're hoping between San Antonio and Laredo, we're hoping to enroll over 900 people. And who 
who should consider uh, applying to enroll? So if you want to learn more about the study, you can go to recovercovid.org. It has a description. Really, in San Antonio and in Laredo, we are looking for people who are currently experiencing COVID or they're, they're recovering from COVID and to follow people over time. So the only real inclusion criteria are that you did, you've had COVID and that you're willing to come and see us and get a bunch of tests every so often over the course of four years. Okay, so call us with your long COVID story or question, 833-TPR-TALK. Uh, that's 833-877-8255. Tweet us at TPR Source or email us at thesource at tpr.org. And here is an email from, from Dan who says, My wife is a previously healthy 40-year-old who had COVID in August 2020. Symptoms at that time included six weeks of daily low-grade fevers and fatigue and also intermittent headaches. Uh, since then, uh, the most persistent and nagging symptom is daily eye pain that is exacerbated by wearing contacts. She never had this problem before COVID. A visit to an ophthalmologist revealed nothing abnormal. We can't find much on the internet describing chronic eye pain as a long hauler symptom. I've heard of it uh, here and there. Dr. Sashadri, is that neurological or is that something else? Again, um, you know, in each patient, one needs to examine and also make sure there aren't other treatable coincidental illness. But we talked about um, involvement of small nerve fibers. And there are one of the parts of the body that has the highest density of small nerve fibers is the cornea of the eye. So involvement of these small nerve fibers can result in being hypersensitive or in a sensation of pain, um, even without any painful, you know, conventionally painful stimulus. But again, it's hard to be, uh, you know, for this particular, uh, for Dan, I would say um, you should um, discuss with your ophthalmologist uh, again and make sure that other treatable causes that may have incidentally occurred have been ruled out. And then uh, we would, of course, welcome if you're in the San Antonio area, your collaborate, your jo um, applying to join to the study. Uh, we do study the entire nervous system in with multiple questionnaires as well as tests. Uh, Dr. Taylor, have you seen a lot of patients with uh, lingering eye pain? I have not, um, but that certainly doesn't mean that it can't happen. As Dr. Shad I think Dr. Shadri is the expert, and it's definitely true that there are a lot of different ways that COVID can affect your nervous system. I think one of the real challenges with long COVID is for many people, you know, I certainly talk to many people who, when they initially suspect that they are having a symptom from long COVID, experience a lot of pushback from the health system 
And some people are told that their symptoms aren't real and other people are told that they, you know, they just need to get more sleep or other things. But I think this is why we need these long, the sort of longitudinal studies so much is because it will really give us a chance to look at things in depth, do all of the in-depth testing and come up with a better understanding of what all the consequences of COVID-19 are. You read my mind, Dr. Taylor. I was just about to add to, to talk about how uh, people go to the doctor with long COVID symptoms. And uh, I see on the internet all the time, they feel uh, sort of brushed off and like they're not believed. And I've talked to both you and uh, Dr. Sashadri several times over the pandemic. You guys have always been like, yeah, this is a thing and we need to figure this out. Uh, what should a person do if they go to the doctor and they're like, uh, yeah, just, you know, take an antidepressant and get some sleep and call me in the morning, Dr. Taylor. Well, I mean, antidepressants and sleep are uh, are often good ideas. Sure, but sure, sure. I do, I do I enjoy think both. That, um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I would like more sleep right now. Um, I definitely think that it is important for everyone to feel heard by their healthcare providers. And if you are experiencing that kind of frustration, one of the real challenges we have in San Antonio is access to care, but I would encourage you to seek out someone who will listen to you. All right, great. Uh, we uh, have one more, about 50 more minutes to share your stories or answer your questions. 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. Tweet us at TPR Source or send us an email at thesource at tpr.org. We are talking about long COVID. on Texas Public Radio, 89.1 FM. I'm Bonnie Petrie in for David Martin Davies, and um, we're talking about long COVID. So if you have a long COVID story, if you're a long hauler, or you have a question about long COVID, give us a call or text us at 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. Uh, Dr. Taylor, um, uh, let me run down your your uh, creds again, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Assistant Dean for the MDMPH program at UT Health San Antonio. Um, let's talk a, a little bit more about the study because one of the reasons it's exciting that we have these locations in San Antonio and Laredo is because we have unique demographics here. So what can our unique population do to inform the larger study? What do we offer here? So I think... San Antonio and Laredo are both interesting um, sites for a study like this to occur because, one, we have had a higher burden of COVID than some other places in the U.S., and, two, we have a very diverse population. So with any scientific finding, it is really important to understand how it applies across multiple different races, ethnicities, age groups, demographics. And I think San Antonio and Laredo will both really be able to contribute in that regard in this study. Interestingly, we, uh, not only do we have a diverse population, but we uh, and we have an urban population in both areas, but we have a lot of uh, rural folks too. Yeah. And I think, you know, what do we know about COVID? We know that it has 
certainly had an increased impact in dense urban settings. It also has people of color have borne an outsized burden of this illness. And so it's really important to recognize that. And I think the challenges for rural Texans and rural folks in general is our issues with access to care. And so one of the things we know about long COVID is the more severe your illnesses, the more likely you are to get long COVID. And that can be caused by problems with just getting access to care, getting access to oxygen. Your first illness with COVID can really predict how things are going to go, how things are going to go in the long run. Okay, let's take a call. David, uh, what's up? Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, yes, I just had a, a question here. Um, I'm 58 years old. My mom is 96 years old. I had COVID in January of 2020 before the big outbreak, and she suspects that she did too. We both have gotten the Moderna vaccine, and we both are experiencing dry mouth during sleep. I'm talking extremely dry. Has there been any reports of that? Dr. Taylor? So that certainly could be a symptom of some autonomic dysfunction, I think. Um, But there, like I said, there is a whole constellation of symptoms with long COVID. And so it is very easy to say, yes, this is happening. And I think the question would be, is it attributable to long COVID or is it attributable to something else? But it's something that should certainly be looked into. You uh, you both have mentioned the autonomic system a couple of times, and um, it's been interesting to watch uh, research into long COVID uh, to really sort of um, pay attention to dysautonomia or um, autoimmune conditions that, that often sort of um, are ignored, it seems, by the medical community. These are uh, now at, at the top of line of research, Dr. Taylor. Um, it's very interesting, like a person uh, uh, who used to have to fight to get a, a tilt table test for uh, dysautonomia. Now, now these things are much easier to get. Uh, is, so is there some good that can come from this, Dr. Taylor? I certainly hope so. I mean, one always hopes that out of this horrible tragedy of this pandemic that we are learning and that will allow us to better serve our patients in the future. I do really think it has increased our awareness of a lot of these neurological syndromes that are less common. I Certainly for me, I have learned a lot about loss of sense of taste and smell for my colleagues like Dr. Shashadri and Dr. Vaduscu Gutierrez. I had never really had to tell anybody how to do smell training, for example, until the last two years. And so I do think we're learning and I think it's increasing awareness of these syndromes that are less definable and require a little bit of extra attention and diagnostic workup and hopefully making them more just sort of brought into the light of okay, these are real things that are happening to people and we need to figure out a way to have the science describe what's happening. All right, 833-877-8255. Jenny is on the phone. What's on your mind, Jenny? 
Hi, um, I was just calling. I have a 20 year old nephew who had COVID back in um, June of 2020, and he still to this day has high blood pressure. Um, he's seen doctors. He's gone. He lives in the Chicago area. He's seen doctors in Northwestern University, and they really can't get, explain anything to him. Um, they put him on high blood pressure meds, and he's, he still has high blood pressure. Um, and they've even had to increase his dose, and he's only 20. Um, do you have any thoughts or? ideas on that? Dr. Taylor, um, you know, we were just talking about dysautonomia, you know, blood pressure um, is an issue. Is high blood pressure common? So we, I would say more commonly are labile blood pressures and, and high heart rates, but it is certainly because because SARS-CoV-2, this virus can impact any of our organ systems, and also because it goes through the ACE2 receptor, and ACE2 is important in, in terms of regulation of blood pressure and heart rate and um, and is particularly important in the kidneys, I think that it is entirely possible that one could develop higher blood pressure after COVID. So what should uh, her nephew do? So I think you know, the most important thing is to control the blood pressure because it's, you know, it is, sounds like it is a real thing. And then having, making sure other organ systems are working well. So definitely making sure that his kidneys are functioning well, watching his other um, inflammatory perimeters and really continuing in care to see that, you know, the real challenge with this is we don't know if many of these phenomena are temporary and we should expect that these will go away in the next couple of years or if these are permanent changes. And I think the answer to that question probably varies from person to person. So there's so much, unfortunately, that we still don't know about this very new syndrome. So the federal government... uh, considers this, in some cases, a, a disability, recognizes that this can be disabling. Um, are you concerned, Dr. Taylor, as we go forward, uh, what kind of burden this might put on the healthcare system or the economy or any number of other things? Yes. And I think that we, you know, there are so many, we have talked over the last two years about sort of what will the long-term consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic be in our society? And we just don't know. You know, we have never been in a situation where so many people have had the same virus over a short period of time in the United States in, in, in memory. You know, we've surpassed numbers for the 1918 flu. Now, granted, probably a lot of 1918 flu cases were not diagnosed, but um, this is unprecedented. And certainly the concern, if 10 to 20% of people who have COVID-19 are going to have some sort of long COVID symptoms, then we need to be prepared to address it. We need better treatments. We need to know how to help people with all of these different symptoms. And we need to be prepared as a society to support people through it. Dr. Sashadri, a population with impaired cognitive function isn't great. Uh, what, What are your concerns going forward? Exactly. Uh, As you said, if this increases the prevalence of uh, cognitive dysfunction, that is going to put a burden on our system. So it's important that we know, A, whether in fact there is a higher risk of persistent symptoms, not just in individuals, but 
in large numbers of people and B, can we predict and then C, can we prevent this by intervening early? And that's where the uh, trials part of recover comes in. The intervention could be something like training. Um, you know, Dr. Taylor talked about smell training. You have cognitive training, uh, or it could be in the form of medications to reduce or modify inflammation, um, or in other ways as we understand more about the link between the virus and the symptoms. It's probably a little late in the show since we only have about two minutes to dive into this. But Dr. Taylor, do you have any ideas, uh, again, with only two minutes to go, uh, what may be causing uh, this long-term dysregulation? So I think everybody has a lot of different ideas. We've mentioned some of them, the direct impact of the virus on organ systems, the injury to the lining of our blood vessels and our cells, this immune system deregulation and high inflammation. Dr. Shashadri mentioned the high hypercoagulable state, like we make a lot of blood clots with COVID. And then there's all the issues of the ACE2 pathway. That plus People are under a lot of stress, um, both physically and emotionally in COVID, and we, people who are sicker, have critical illness issues. You know, if you're in the ICU, you have sequelae from that. So I think all of those things combine to make this picture, which is why the picture itself is so complex, and it requires such a multidisciplinary team of people to address it. All right. Well, I thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. That is Dr. Barbara Taylor, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Assistant Dean for the MD-MPH program at UT Health San Antonio. Uh, Dr. Sashadri is a professor of neurology and a founding director of the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases at UT Health San Antonio. Uh, The Recover Study is going on here in San Antonio. If you want to learn more about that, perhaps enroll, go to our website, tpr.org. We'll have all the information for you there. You have been listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio 89.1 FM. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted by David Martin Davies, produced by Kim Johnson and Dallas Williams, with production assistance provided by Jackie Velez. Dan Katz is TPR's news director. Support for The Source comes from contributors to the Community Engagement Fund, including the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation. 